Let me begin by this. If we were to put four dads up front, and the first one um, was a little bit pudgy and uh, maybe bald or whatever, and, um, but on, we hung a sign around their necks. And on this sign, it had the word IRS agent. The next one, standing next to him, this one was a little bit different because he had actually oozing sores from his hands and his feet. And on that sign was the sign leper. And then we had a third dad standing there with a sign and his eyes were bloodshot and anger was all over his face. And you look on the sign and it says, demon-possessed father. And we go to a fourth man, a fourth dad here. And this is a dad who's dressed to the T's, latest shoes, his hair is well manicured. And it's obvious that he has had money, has money, and he's successful. And on the sign it says, a successful businessman. If I were to give you some money and say, take one of these guys out to the sawmill today for brunch, who would you pick? Who would we choose to identify with or be with and not be embarrassed? Do you understand the challenge is that these first three people had been with Jesus. And today the story, by the way, turn to Mark chapter 10. But the story, we're dealing with this rich young ruler, this rich young man. He was the one that was the successful man. Matter of fact, I think he dripped with success. And he comes to Jesus. And somehow, just the backdrop of this story, you understand, he's been thinking about eternity. He's been thinking about heaven, the afterlife, and we don't know exactly why. It really doesn't say, but maybe there was a, a death in the family or something like that. But somewhere along the line, he's going, okay, what happens when I die? As we come to verse 17 here today, and you'll notice here, just and again, another preface is he gives Jesus respect. Look how it reads in verse 17. And he was setting out on his journey, and a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Now he's re referring to the Ten Commandments here. Um, and he starts listing a few of them. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now you go, okay, he asked this question, but what does Jesus turn and begin to do? And I think it's kind of obvious here, Jesus is beginning to probe the guy's heart. He's kind of knocking on his door. But I, I think this is another assumption, as we can, we can say about this man. This man was not coming to Jesus because he was broken. I think of all the others, even those other three that we had up here, how they encountered Jesus, the leper. 
Matter of fact, I'd add another one. You think of this woman who had been bleeding since, since years and years and years, and she comes to Jesus with an attitude of brokenness, believing that Jesus was the one that could change her situation, that could heal her. She was desperate. But the attitude of this man, while he gave Jesus respect, it was not brokenness. And I think this is the better term, self-confidence in this man. What, Jesus, what must I do? See, I think when we, we can assume there that this man believed that he had in some form the power and the ability to influence his spiritual destiny. Good teacher, what must I do? I do. Now, catch this, there is a misguided belief that he had, and for your notes, if you're following along, it includes many others besides this rich young man. Number one in the notes, I said it this way, this man and many others believe that one can earn their way to eternal bliss. This man, recognized, had a flawed understanding of the nature of man and the nature of righteousness. And it was a problem that goes way beyond this guy. It goes, this is the issue in the world as well today. As a matter of fact, I, I think it's actually an issue within many people who claim to be Christians today. I want to put a picture on the screen about this misguided belief. And here is a scale, old-fashioned scale. But here's how it goes in this, this wrong belief system. It says this, if I, on the right side there, if I put enough good deeds on that scale and can force that scale down, then I've done enough. So therefore, I must be good to go when it comes to heaven and eternity. And if I do enough on the other side, the bad side, enough bad deeds... Well, either, fundamentally, we might believe, if we don't believe in hell, we're just, I'm just going to take my chances with whatever the afterlife brings. But on that right side, it's, I can do enough stuff that I deserve heaven. And this is a belief that the world has bought into over and over and over again. And, and Jesus listed some good things. And uh, you notice that the, the commandments of things that he should do and not do. And in verse 20, it says, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. See, there was a self-deception with this man in that he was defining goodness by his own definition of being good. But here's the deal. The man had fooled himself into thinking that being good or doing enough good things again earned heaven. And functionally, he's asking Jesus, what other things can I add to that scale that will just guarantee me eternal bliss in heaven? Good enough. What things can I do? You know what? I've done a number of funerals over the years. I've attended also many others as well. And you think of some of those uh, times of sharing at funerals. P people start going like, man, this guy, he was really a good man. Or she was really a good, loving woman. And they say that whether they have a faith or not. You understand that. 
But hear this, without the lens of Scripture, without the lens of the Bible, people can believe that they're good enough and they've earned heaven, but it comes up short. Any goodness without Christ, as it relates to eternal life, is not good enough. Goodness based on a scale has nothing to do with eternal life. Actually, good enough will always come up short because one has to actually be perfect in this system. But let me give you rephrase point one in your notes there. Fundamentally, this is another issue that just is coupled with it and really is the same thing. People believe that one can become righteous by doing righteous deeds. And this... This belief, by the way, wiggles its way in even to people who claim to follow Jesus. Because ask yourself deep within your heart, do you believe that God loves you more today because you came to church? Do you believe that God will love you more if you read the Bible every day? Or do you believe that God's going to love you more because you go on a short-term missions trip or you that you're working with the poor or that you're working with the marginalized or you're doing all these things in Jesus' name? See, the world is trapped in a system that believing one can become righteous by doing good deeds. And this man was successful according to the world's economy in that way. But just think a moment with me about the word success. This man was successful. Success comes from what effort I put into it. Matter of fact, even in the challenges, some of you teachers are out there, the challenges of an educational system that's built on a reward system where you work hard to get an A. I worked hard to get a C. Okay, maybe I didn't work that hard, but I... Okay. I remember one time talking to a, a seminary professor, and he said this. He said, Ken, if I could have done one thing, change one thing about seminary, I would do this. I would get rid of the grades. He said, immediately these students come in, and they start working for the A, and they forget that God wants to be working on their heart. You see, the challenge of our system today, the reward system, we forget about some, what it really is in terms of our identity being in Christ. But remember that one's identity has nothing to do with merit, earning it. It can only come from a relationship with Jesus and the Father. But what I find is when we, someone begins to actually probe within where we find our identity, it, it's an interesting exercise to begin to dig in people's hearts Because all of a sudden, you begin to touch where their real identity is really at. And they kind of go, la, 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 I don't want to hear that. See, this man, the story of this man, is also about his identity. It was not found in God. Now, now here's where I I want you to be, we need to be careful. Because, for example, working hard, work is not, evil success is not evil good grades are not evil having money is not evil but for this man success and the money the working I understand working hard he believed that somehow it was equated to earning something toward eternity well let me 
throw a question at you, and it's in your notes, I believe. It, the question really is this, when you think of working hard even and success. Does working hard and being successful build my kingdom or God's kingdom? See, that's the economy that God wants us to be working within. Is what I'm doing in this world, and if you're a student here, what you're doing in school, is it for my glory, your glory, or is it for God's glory? See, what does it mean to go to school for the purpose of God's glory? Parents, have you ever had a discussion? Maybe that's a dinner table discussion for you. you go, what does that mean? But this successful man believed that he had kept all the commandments that Jesus threw at him. And you look at the response in 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Now here's where some object even. Isn't selling all those things an action? A type of work? Isn't a righteous deed that he's saying that Jesus, you can, God, you can earn your way to heaven if you go sell all that you have? Now, I think this is reality. It's pretty clear that Jesus, he's speaking a little bit of an exaggeration in the sense where he's exposing his attitude of the heart, his willingness to do it. Now, again, some take this passage, I've got to point this out, and they say this, See, you are called to sell all your possessions and give to the poor in order to prove your allegiance to God. That's how some people want to take this text here today. And I go, no, no, I don't think so. I understand this, is that um, realize that Jesus didn't call his disciples and tell them to sell everything. Matter of fact, Jesus, uh, Peter kept his fishing business. They stayed in Peter's home. They stayed in the disciples' homes that they owned to, as the jumping off station in terms of his ministry. They didn't sell everything to follow Jesus. To understand, it's really not the issue here. But let me show you the response in verse 22 of his, his response. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sor sorrowful, and for he had great possessions. He wanted those possessions. It, the cost was just too high for him. Now Here's where I, I got to go down an alley as well. Because some people here look at this guy and they go this. See the evilness of having all this money? And what we do is we assume that people that have money are greedy, that they're evil because they have, the, they have, they have money. But you've got to point, notice something in the passage here. Is when you look at that, it says, did you notice that, that Jesus actually loved him? It says, it points it out that he loved him. A wealthy guy. See, it's understand, uh, yeah, he's trapped by the love of money. That traps people. But listen, God doesn't look differently at different groups of people and rate them in, in which he should love based on their economic position or the color of their skin or whether they're poor or whether they're rich. He does not love the poor person more than the rich person. It's contrary to the nature of God. See, this is a biblical theology. When you get into a biblical theology of work and success and what does that mean, God's economy is very different. 
work and working hard actually is a gift to us from God. But with the nature of man, with the sinfulness that creeps in, some people, for example, even don't want to work. And and at times, we go, what do we do with that? And I got to tell you that at times not wanting to work is actually deep, uh, is a sin. I I don't know if you realize it, but you you can quickly go to 25 different verses that talks about laziness and slothfulness in the scriptures. But catch this, the poor also, do you realize this, can have a love for money? As much as the rich. They don't have it, but their love for the money is just as strong. Uh, 2008, a study by PBS. Listen to this, I came across this. Households that earn less than $13,000 a year spend a staggering 9% of their income on lottery tickets. 9%. Why? Because they love money and what it brings. It brings the feeling of worth and success and all of the other trappings with it. But we got to stay away that God loves the poor and the marginalized more than the rich. That just isn't biblical. But I also need to point out one other nuance here in this exchange that we've read. See, the reality is that we don't like people when they confront us with hard things. See, we think that love, when it says God, you know, Jesus loved this man, but when we begin to define love, we go, love means that we're, well, the new form of love is that you're tolerant of all behavior. And love means that we shouldn't be offending people or saying hard things to people because they might feel bad. Folks, that is not biblical love. Neither of those are. They're sloppy definitions of it. Jesus loved this rich man, but Jesus said things that literally gave him an option, either follow me or it drove him away. This was a strong question. This wasn't, in, in our day and age, this wouldn't have been a loving question to even ask. Jesus loved people, and at times he cut to the heart of people. But Jesus continues, and he begins to give some commentary on money. Look at verse 23. And Jesus looked around, and he said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Now, on that whole camel and gate thing, some people say that actually in Jerusalem in the wall there's what's called the camel gate. I'm not convinced that that's what he's referring to here. I think it's an exaggeration of going, the largest animal of their day, you understand, was a camel. And to go through the eye of a needle, how difficult that would be. It's an exaggeration. It's impossible. And then in 26, then who can be saved? See, if a rich person can't get into the kingdom, how can anybody get into it? Now, do you see the assumption by the disciples as well? Do you feel that a little bit? Well, if they can't do it, 
How can anybody do it? But look at the response in verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God. For all things are possible with God. He's referring to salvation there. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. Let me just stop a moment. And he doesn't say marriages here. I think it was intentional, by the way. I just want to point that out. You can ponder that. Verse 30, Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time in houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who were first will be last and the last first. That first phrase, all things are possible with God. What has Jesus just done? He's saying this, the path to salvation is not works. It's not about earning righteousness. It's not about registering high and the trying harder to be good meter. See, salvation is about God. But you also notice something here as well, that he includes himself and the gospel in that. Verse 29, anyone who is unwilling to follow for my sake and for the gospel. What's the summary of this whole section? And number two in your notes, I said it this way, what is really true? That salvation and the kingdom of God demand the great exchanges. And, and I'll, I'll show you what really the summary of those are. Now, this Jesus, understand, he knew that this man was probably right. He never committed adultery. He didn't dishonor his father and mother. It's very well could have been true. He hadn't killed anybody, okay? So he's probably kept the, the, the most of those commandments. He's done pretty well. Probably didn't even bear false witness against people. But Jesus knows that his heart is desperately wicked still. And you realize this, as we, when you pause and ponder, he actually has probably broken three commandments already in his understanding of money and possessions. I think he's done the first, the second, and the tenth because of his love for his stuff and in the unwillingness to surrender. Commandment number one, let me just show you this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Money had become his God. And he needed an exchange. And he, it couldn't ha he didn't do it, but the exchange is this. The change from self being Lord to Jesus being Lord. See, this is about followership, coming under an authority of the supreme holy God. It, 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 but if one isn't willing to follow Jesus and allow him to control the world around him and their own world, you're really breaking the first commandment of having another God in your life. And when it comes to salvation, the kingdom, you understand, this text implies authority as well, giving up to be first and to be last on this earth so you could be first in the kingdom. Students, people, any age, Jesus as Lord has a position, it's a positional authority in our relationship with him. 
Last week, if you didn't listen to the sermon last week, I referred to the attitude of many people today of how they want Jesus to be in their life. It's like they stick Jesus in their pocket, and then when a hard times come, we pull Jesus out, and Jesus, would you fix my problem? And then we take and put Jesus back into our pocket, and we're good to go. But that kind of Jesus, Jesus is not Lord. And this man was unwilling to make Jesus Lord. But I also think he violated the 10th commandment. Look how the 10th one reads. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, and anything that is your neighbor's. Now, I understand this, that I think when anybody has riches and they're, it's, they're consumed by it, they want more. Matter of fact, but look at another warning. Look at Mark 4.18. Look at, we've already covered this in the parable of the sower. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the word, and look at this, and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke it out. Sermon on the Mount. If we were to go there, can't serve God and money. But this man, what he, he comes and he goes, I want to serve God and I want to serve money. But he was exposing his greed. He really wasn't interested in serving God unless it really benefited him in some way. See, it's, in, it's easy. to We get stuff and then we want more stuff and more stuff. And that really is the heart of commandment number 10. What's the exchange here for your notes? The change from treasuring stuff to treasuring Christ. See, the question, can we really say, if we look deep within our hearts, are we treasuring Christ more than stuff? What's our conviction? What's the Holy Spirit telling us? But I think he's actually breaking one more commandment. Number two, look at this. You shall not make for yourself a carved uh, image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or to serve them. Now we take a very literal of this of saying it's it's a carved image that we're worshiping. And this is really about idols, idolatry. But do you realize that money can be an idol? And it was in this man's life. And all through the scriptures, the rest of the New Testament, Jesus and the other authors are telling us that idolatry is so much more than just a, 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 something you worship on a, a physical object. Matter of fact, let me show you one of the texts. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Paul writes this, For although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, understand the illustration there is like a totem pole. If you've ever looked at a totem pole, you'll see all of these images on it. Well, when they, even when the Native American culture creates those totem poles, what those images are are a reflection of the self. So you worship the pole. Who are you worshiping? Yourself. And let me, let me show you how this works in verse 24. Therefore, 
God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. Idols is about what you worship. The exchange here for your notes, the change from worshiping self to worshiping the triune God. This man was unwilling to do it. See, we serve that which we love. We worship that which we love. And the question is, to what or to whom or what is it that we're actually giving our love? Now, I got to say this as well. We can think that we're we can talk about loving God and we can actually be loving ourselves. We, we can create God talk about it and still have things the center of my life. What, see, when life is centered about my needs, my desires, my wants, my wishes, it's pretty clear that we're actually worshiping ourselves. We're number one. Because we love ourselves more than anything else including God. Here's where I need to to end here. I want to put a picture of the scale back up. And here's what I need to ask. Is there anybody here where you're stuck in this economy, spiritual economy, where you think that you're good enough for salvation by just doing the right things? And I'll just say to you, salvation has nothing to do with earning. It has everything to do with receiving a free gift through faith. Believing that Jesus died for your and mine, our unrighteousness. And if you've never said intentionally into your heart that I'm willing to bow before him and make Jesus Lord, I've never said that I'm willing to give up control of my circumstances, even my money. And I want to follow Jesus because he died for me. If you've never done that, can I implore you to consider that? Because if you are still living on that scale, you're going to find when the end comes, it wasn't good enough. But if, if you're here today and as a follower of Christ, my question for you is, where is your identity coming from? Is it possessions? Is it this really nice house? Is it money? Is it success? Is it the kids' success? See, Jesus wants our heart fully. He wants those things ultimately to be used for his glory, but not for them to become idols in the first place in our lives. And he invites us to worship him fully with our hearts and our minds, and our wills, and our strength. And if you're a child of God, he loves you, not because of what you've done, because of some righteousness. He loves you, period, because that's who he is. I'm going to invite the elders up for communion. We're going to participate today. But do do we know that this table represents our new identity in Christ? He died because he loved us, not based on whether we're 
doing something, trying to be good, he just flat out loved us because he loved the world. We practice open communion here, and if you know Jesus as your Savior, I'd invite you to take communion. And guys, you want to hand out the bread here, but one of the things we do is that we just hold the elements until so we can take it together as a, as a sign of our unity together. But let's just ponder and go search within your heart and ask the question, is my identity about the things out there or is it with me being with Jesus, bonding with him?